Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. Today, my guest is Heidi McNeely. She has a nursing background and she is the diversion prevention officer at an acute care hospital where she's been in that role for about four and a half years. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you so much, Terry. A while back, I heard a webinar by Heidi on simulations and how they can be used to prepare for or prevent drug diversion. Simulations is something that I was not familiar with. So I'm gonna guess there are many of you out there that also are not familiar with that and how it can be used. So I wanted Heidi to give us an overview on how simulations can be used and in what settings she has seen them used. Yeah, great. I. I agree, you know, I wasn't that familiar with simulations and 21 years ago when I finished nursing school, we did, were not trained at all um, using simulation, but it has become a very popular science and the technology has advanced over the last several years quite a bit. So I'm fortunate enough to work in an organization where we have a high fidelity simulation lab. That means we have mannequins that replicate as much as possible a real life Life, patient and experience. Of course, these are not walking, talking mannequins, but you can talk through the mannequins. So um, they breathe, they have a pulse, you can start IV on them. That sounds a little them. creepy, Heidi. <laughs> yeah, their eyes open and close. Um, we even have a mannequin that can deliver a baby, which is fascinating. So um, I am not that technology savvy to have, you know, even imagined that this was possible. But um, so I recognize that a lot of organizations don't have access to this technology. But um, for those that may, I think just talking a little bit about how we leverage it and how we've used it might be helpful. Um, I think the big point is if you don't have that technology available, you can still be really creative about how you create what we would call low fidelity simulation scenarios to help educate your staff or team members around diversion prevention. So we use the um, high fidelity lab and we partner with the nursing and physician leaders that run that lab to come up with a few scenarios for our staff. And we do one scenario that's a staff member scenario where the staff member is found um, lying on the floor with a needle in their arm, um, you know, representing an overdose scenario where the individual may have taken some medication while at work. And the team comes in with very little warning. Usually we just pull an alarm and the team has to run into the lab and then find the team member laying there and respond to it. So the simulation allows them to process through and think about what may have happened to this individual, how would I handle it, obviously to practice their first response, you know, basic life support measures, those kinds of things, um, but also then to debrief. What, what happens after an emergency situation like that? Who do we notify? Um, how do we support the team members who responded? And it allows for really good practice of team communication and team functioning while they're in the simulation. And then our sec second scenario is a patient scenario, um, not an uncommon one. I've actually investigated a few of these over the last few years, is a patient who's manipulated their IV pump settings and has received more medication than what was prescribed for them to receive. And so they come in to find a patient with a really low respiratory rate, um, not very responsive, and then the team is expected to intervene and hopefully identify that the pump settings are programmed incorrectly. So it's also just a great opportunity to debrief with the team members after and to talk about diversion. 
talk about how often this happens, um, talk about the realities of it, how difficult or challenging it may be, and then to provide some resources going forward. So yeah, that, that's great. I, I think a lot of healthcare workers don't think that there's diversion out there if they're not practicing it. They have a hard time thinking that there would be a healthcare worker that would be involved in that. So that is a great opportunity to then expose them to that. How many do you have a sense for the one where you have a healthcare worker that's found down? Do most of the teams that are going in for the simulation go straight to, uh-oh, they've OD'd? Or is there a lot of like, it, they just, it doesn't enter their mind? Do you find kind of a pattern or? Yeah, it's been an interesting mix in what we've seen in the year or so that we tested that scenario. Um, we have multiple scenarios in the simulation lab, so this is just one that kind of comes up in the rotation every so often. Um, but we have a lot of individuals who see that immediately and recognize that that's probably what happened. Um, we have had others where especially if there's not a good handoff from the very first person who responds to the other team members that are joining or a report that's given, that individuals may assume somebody was trying to draw blood off of that needle. And we've seen that where they've, you know, started to draw more blood as if like a different team member started and then stopped and left the needle there. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that situational awareness is something we really try to practice in those yes. um, scenarios because you never know how you're going to respond until you're in that scenario. But the more you can practice and prepare and run through it with your team, the more likely you'll be, you know, better at communicating and more successful when you're actually in a real life situation. Yeah, for sure. Any situation that situational mm -hmm. situal awareness is, is important. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, that, that's pretty cool. I'd love to see one of those things. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So I first met Heidi through IHFDA. For um, those of you that are not familiar with that, I interviewed John Berkey. So go back, take a look at one of those interviews. We talked about IHFDA, but she's a board member and she leads a pediatric networking group. So Heidi, tell us how your involvement with IHFDA and networking in general has made a difference for you. Yeah, absolutely. When I first started this program, it was brand new to our organization several years ago. Um, and, you know, there was a lot for me to learn and a really steep learning curve. Um, and so I started reaching out. And fortunately, I had a leader in our organization who had attended an IHFDA conference the year prior. Um, and so they said, you need to join this group, get some information. And I went to the conference the first year and there just realized, oh, this is a you know, overwhelming amount of resources here to help support me. I don't have to do this myself. Um, you know, I think we recognize that diversion happens everywhere, or at least it has the opportunity to be happening everywhere. Um, and so it was important for me to find people who had been doing this, who had already started to develop some best practices. Um, and so now that I've been a member of IHFDA for several years, um, I thought about creating this collaborative group. Originally, I just wanted to talk to anyone and everyone who was working in the fields and learn from them and share what I was learning and finding out. But there are some things that are really unique to pediatric organizations when it comes to medication. And that's because most vials or syringes that come from a pharmacy manufacturer they come in an adult dose. A lot of them, whatever's in the vial is exactly what you need for one dose. Sometimes it's more, right? It's multi-dose vials. But in pediatrics, we do weight-based dosing. And so it depends on the size of the infant 
or child or adolescent. Um, and so we often pull one or many doses off the same vial and then have significant amount of waste. So some of those issues were coming up routinely. How do we handle this differently? Um, how do we track these patient-specific doses on paper forms? Um, and so some of those issues came up and I said, you know, I really need to reach out to pediatric organizations and find out how are others managing these. So that's just one example. But so I started this diversion networking group. We do conference calls. Um, they used to be monthly. I think they're every other month or quarterly now. And honestly, we've talked about a lot of the pediatric issues. Some we figured out, some we know are still challenges for us and we continue to work through those. But we've also expanded and now really open up that group to anybody who's interested in joining. And there's a lot of organizations that have pediatric units um, and they want to be involved and just make sure that, you know, they have a resource to tap into other pediatric hospitals. So, Sure. So networking through that, of course, is important. Are there other ways that you get involved? I know we talked before and there was some other ways that you had used your networking, which we found we kind of had something in common with just networking in general and how it could be beneficial. Can you share one of those with us? Yeah. So um, another piece of that is not just the national networking through IHFDA, but I started a regional collaborative group in um, the Denver metro area. I work in Colorado. And um, I started that group because what I was finding during investigations was that if I reported it, there wasn't always immediate action from the state licensing boards. They're usually very responsive, but sometimes there's not, you know, perfect evidence to say that this individual is in fact diverting their suspicion or the individual leaves. And I would see those individuals I investigated go work at other hospitals. And I thought, you know, this is a this is something we all have to work together on. And so we started partnering. And because of those partnerships, it's easy to pick up the phone now and call somebody and say, you know, I have a need or I have a concern. Um, we're obviously not sharing individual information, but a few years ago, we got an anonymous tip um, in our program about somebody that they were concerned about diverting in another organization in the Denver metro area. And I was able to call the diversion specialist at that organization and say, you know, I don't have a lot of information. Somebody called me and my team because they trusted us and they knew we did this work and they didn't know who to call at your organization. And so through that, they were able to identify um, that there was likely diversion happening, but it was happening in a way that they never would have detected it in data. Um, it was happening through waste streams. And so, um, they were able to follow up um, and attempt to get the individual support. Yeah, that's important. That building of the relationships so that you know that you can, uh, that person will handle things discreetly and appropriately if you give them a tip or some information, because without that, you're just calling a random, you really have no idea how they're going to handle it. Mm -hmm. So that networking piece builds up and, and you're right, in your region, it's important because we do need to work together because people do hop and it does take time for licensing boards to, to do what they need to do. So that's a great example. All right. So you've been in your role for, for quite a while. I believe you said about four and a half years. Do you pretty much have it figured out or is there a particular area surrounding drug diversion prevention and monitoring that you yourself or your institution still struggles with? Oh, yeah. I wish I could say we had it figured out. Um, you know, being a 
a lifelong learner, it is frustrating to not see that there's just a science behind this or an algorithm I can follow and I'll, you know, detect diversion anytime it happens. Every case is unique and different and we always have opportunities um, to, you know, continue to improve our program. I think one of the biggest areas of challenge um, that continues for us are those areas where practice may not be um, ideal and what we expect it to be, and that practice then clouds our data. So, for example, um, medication overrides from a dispensing cabinet. Some areas, it's much more common to have to override, whether it's because they have urgent and emergent situations where they need quick access to the meds, but others, it's because that happens as well as there's maybe the wrong drug profile that's set up in the system. And so the IT, you know, part of it isn't linking accurately and they have to override. So unfortunately, we see examples like that where it just becomes normal and it's no longer alert that really causes them to pause and to think about it and to try to correct that. Um, we are doing some improvement work around medication overrides. So that's been an interdisciplinary big group of work that we're doing. But the challenge is, is when you normalize some of those practices that shouldn't ever be normalized, it then makes the data difficult to tease through. Is this that normal, normal practice? Um, or is this actually diversion? And so being able to tease out some of those things like, you know, late waste or missing waste, is it just they forgot or there's not a good practice to follow back up, especially if medication prep happens not right in the medication room where the cabinet is, but at the bedside. So those are just some specific examples, but the practice concerns or issues where they deviate a little bit and it clouds that data and makes that data difficult. Um, and I also struggle because I have a background in research and quality improvement and performance improvement. So I tend to get um, caught up in wanting to help make those processes better. Mm -hmm. And I spend a lot of time in that. And I, I do think that's valuable in the long run um, to get to a place where our practice really aligns with you know, policy and with best practices, um, and that that data becomes more meaningful, but it also detracts from my time to just really focus on the data. Yeah, so. absolutely. I, I hear you 100%. I think too, often the person doing the drug diversion, I, I'm going to guess, I mean, I know that was my background in med safety first. So anything that I see that is not safe, even if it's not diversion, it's like, well, we have to address this. Mm -hmm. So you get a little sidetracked. But also anybody starting a program that is brand new, you're going to see it because when you start looking, you're going to start seeing poor practice and you got to get that poor practice under control. The question is, how do you get that under control and not lose sight of the diversion? But in some cases, you really can't even start looking for diversion until you get the practice under control. So it may take some, some time. And for those that have the benefit of a software program, you're gonna be able to see that a little bit easier. I know when I'm auditing, if I've got the software program, I can then step back and I can look at the unit as a whole. And sometimes I'll see, well, lots of people seem to be doing this. So let's talk about this as a unit. I'm gonna ignore what the individual is doing for now and let's see if we can get the message out and fix that. But if you don't and you're doing more manual audits, it does make it a little bit harder to see that. So you just have to start with the individual and expect it to clean up. Um, so yeah, no, that, that is definitely, I think, a struggle across the board and something that needs to be identified. That's great. Yeah. Well, 
Do you have any advice for somebody that is just starting in your type of position? They're just starting a program. They want to get started. What advice would you give them? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, be patient and know it's going to take some time, um, you know, to develop a program. And as I mentioned, you know, by no means is my program and our organization's program perfect, right? We're always adjusting, always improving. Um, So ask lots of questions, reach out, collaborate with others. There's some great best practices published by some of the professional organizations out there. Some healthcare organizations publish their policies or practices or guidelines as well. So there's some great documents out there. Reach out to experts like Terry who can help point you in the right direction too. Um, I think, you know, all of us that are doing this work recognize this isn't just a one-man show, that we really, that collaboration and trying to intervene um, before there's harm either to a patient or to the individual who might be diverting medications is so, so important to all of us. So um, ask questions, collaborate, connect with people, um, you know, and do some searches because there's some good information out there. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Those involved in this area want to share their knowledge and we learn from each other. The case studies that we hear, it's like, oh, never thought about looking at that, right? And so we're always learning and improving our programs, which is really what our goal is to to make it safer all across the board. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much, Heidi, for your time. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm.